The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. Again, we are going to be in John chapter 4, starting off. And I want to ask a question for this hour's sermon. And it's, like last hour, a fundamental question, but one we need to be reminded of and look to the Scripture for guidance. And that is, what kind of worship is God seeking? That's an important question for us to ask because it's not a secret that there are varying forms of worship in what I'll loosely use as Christianity, using air quotes, Christianity, because, you know, the people in the denominations will speak about Christianity as inclusive of its varying forms. And I would assert to you that Christianity is simply following Christ. And so if we're not following what Christ says in his word, then we're not Christians and we are not practitioners of Christianity. But I just wanted to mention that because we understand there are various forms of worship within congregations of people who claim to be following Christ. That's that's no new thing that I'm telling you, and we all understand that. And the thing is, many hold the view that each worship holds its own value to God. In other words, there are different ways people are worshiping God who claim to be followers of Christ, but although they differ, they each hold their unique value, and God is equally pleased with all of them. I would assert to you that's not a scriptural concept. And so we need to ask the question and be able to answer it with truth from God's word. What kind of worship is God seeking? Is he seeking a specific kind of worship at all, or is he accepting of all kinds of worship? Well, what kind of worship is God seeking? You know, the varying forms of worship to God is not a new thing. It reaches all the way back to the beginning, really. And I think we see an example of that in John the fourth chapter, where over 2,000 years ago, there was a Samaritan woman who made a leading statement to Jesus, seeking for his own opinion, if you will, or his own information. And it concerned various forms or concepts and ways of worshiping God. Essentially, it was a statement with a question in the background of what kind of worship is God seeking? Who's right here? And the answer of Jesus is, of course, instructive for us. We can learn from what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman about worship in John the fourth chapter. The woman said to him in John 4 and verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now someone might suggest that Jesus' reply to the woman's leading statement was simply, it doesn't matter. Uh, when, when this time I'm speaking of comes, it, it doesn't matter what you do. 
um, that God is going to be accepting of any kind and any form of worship. That that's not what he's saying at all. I think we're going to be able to see that. What he's saying is that this dispensation that makes the difference of the place of worship is coming to an end. And there's a time coming where God still wants a specific kind of worship. And we need to ask, what kind of worship is God seeking? But one of the things that is not going to be a part of what he's seeking is the place. You can worship God anywhere you want. But it is indeed still true that God is seeking a specific form of worship. So consider that this morning with me, if you will. What kind of worship is God seeking? And I think that first we maybe ask another question before we get to the answer of that question, which is involved in answering the question. And that is, does God care how he's worshipped? Does he care? Does he even care how he's worshipped? We ask the question, what kind of worship is God seeking? But, but we need to ask first, does he even care? Does he care how he's worshipped at all? Well, I would suggest to you that the very text we just read implies that he does. Consider that people in the past have consistently understood that God cares. Now, this doesn't mean that they were always right in what they thought God wanted, but they knew God cares, which is why the woman said, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And so she had this understanding that God cares how he's worshipped. He cares where he's worshipped. We just have a, a difference of opinion or stance on where we think that is between you Jews and us Samaritans. And so it's obvious that they thought God cared. And that kind of stands in contrast to what we see today, where there's a sense of relativism in asking this question, what kind of worship is God seeking? You know, there was a difference way back then between the Samaritans and the Jews, just like there's differences today between those who claim to be following Christ. The difference, though, that is the greatest is that back then the Samaritans thought the Jews were wrong and the Jews thought the Samaritans were wrong. But today, even though there are many differences, there's a sense of relativism as if it doesn't matter. God is accepting of all of this. But Jesus doesn't skirt the issue. He, he doesn't avoid it. He doesn't act like it doesn't matter. In fact, in verse 22, he says, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. You see, the Samaritans, they only accepted the first five books of the law. Genesis, um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But they rejected the rest of the law that came by revelation from prophets. And it's there in the prophets that God specified Jerusalem as the place of worship. And so we understand that worship can be heartfelt. But if we don't know who we worship, then how can it be accepting to that person. And so he says, you worship what you do not know. And that implied that God does care how he's worshiped. Verse 23 shows that. The hour is coming now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Why? For the Father is seeking such to worship him. So the Father is seeking a certain type of worship. In verse 24, that worship is that which falls in line with the very nature of God. He is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So this very text, Jesus does not give the impression that God doesn't care. God does care 
how he is worshipped. So it is a valid question to ask, what kind of worship is God seeking? You know, we also see in scriptures that God has cared in the past. And while there are some who hold the position that God is somehow different now than he was in the Old Testament, or the God of the Old Testament is a different God altogether than the God of the New Testament. That's really how a lot of people you know, live their lives and act as if the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. That's not the case. The covenants have changed, but the God that is the author of those covenants has not changed. And there are fundamental principles regarding that that go from the Old Testament to the New Testament since God has not changed and his nature has not changed. And he has always cared in the past how people worship him. And so that means he cares today. In Exodus, the 25th chapter, we see an example of this, where with the Jewish people who God called out from Egypt to be his people, he gave them instruction on how he would be worshipped, how he wants to be worshipped. And the place of God's symbolic dwelling was in the tabernacle, and that would be where worship was administered in great part with all the sacrifices and the ceremonies that the priests would be involved in leading in. And I want us to notice in Exodus 25 that God very much cared how this tabernacle, this center of worship, was erected. The Lord spoke to Moses saying in Exodus 25 and verse 2, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Now we'll We'll dismiss with the list, but you notice all of the specific detailed instructions regarding the materials for this tabernacle. Specific types of hair, specific colors of thread, specific types of wood, and specific types of stones. And in verse 8 he says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. You're going to take all these specific materials and with it you're going to make this place of worship. And he says in verse 9, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. God has cared in the past about how he's worshipped, and we see that with the place of worship in the tabernacle. He said, just so. In other words, exactly as I just told you, according to the pattern, you make it. You know, it's interesting that the place of the tabernacle was specifically mentioned by God as the place for worship where he would dwell, and that's exactly where he wanted to be worshipped. In 2 Samuel 7, we see David pondering about how God dwells in tent curtains, and he dwells in a house of cedar, and he thought that wasn't right. And Nathan gave him permission to go and, and build God a house, even though God had not given that permission. And this is what the Lord told Nathan to tell David, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever have I moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I have commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, God is saying, I care how I'm worshipped, I care what my place of dwelling is, and what I told you was the tabernacle. I never said anything about a physical house that would be permanent, yet we know that Solomon built him a house 
because it was God's will after the nation would have peace from their enemies all around them and not in a time of war that that temple would be built. But he never gave the instruction for David to build it. God cared in the past how he was worshipped. And we see that with the example of the tabernacle. And we see that back in John chapter 4 with the place of worship. The woman said to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So this mountain she's referring to, where at the foot of that mountain was Jacob's well, is Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans thought acceptable worship was at Mount Gerizim. And the Jews, of course, were convinced that it was in Jerusalem. And in verse 22, Jesus explained again, you worship what you do not know. In other words, you're wrong, but we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. The Samaritans are wrong, but the Jews are right. God cares about this issue and you're wrong about it. Now, the time is coming where it doesn't matter if it's in Jerusalem or Gerizim, but that does matter now and you're wrong. In Deuteronomy 12 and verse 5, the instruction was given, you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings and sacrifices, tithes, heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to, to, in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So, he says, God is going to choose a place for himself, and that's where you're going to perform your worship. That's where his house is going to be. That's where he's going to dwell. Now, the Samaritans rejected the rest of the law, only accepting the first five books. And so they rejected the words that specified that place. And we come to know through study of Scripture that that place specified by God was Jerusalem. When the kingdom was divided, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom may return to the house of David if these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then their hearts will turn back to the Lord um, Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And so he mentions that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. And God cared about that. Jeroboam, as we remember, goes on to rebel because as the northern ten tribes he wanted to keep them there, and he said it was too much for them to go to Jerusalem. And he set up places in Dan and Bethel, and he set up idols there, and he rebelled against what the Lord's will was. Why? Because the Lord cared, and he set the place for worship in Jerusalem. You know, we also see that with the worship that had been offered in past times. We see an example of this in Leviticus 10 and verse 1 when it says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. We'll revisit this again, but I just want us to notice here that they offered strange fire before the Lord, and it was strange because it was fire that the Lord had not commanded. And so does the Lord even care how he's worshipped? Well, yeah, he's cared in the past, and he's not changed today. He still cares how he's worshipped today. There in verse 23 of John 4, it says that the Father is seeking true worshipers to worship him. He has a specific way he wants to be worshipped. He cares how he's worshipped. In Colossians 3 and verse 17, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, 
whatever we do or say in our everyday life, but that would also include our worship to God. It needs to be in the name of the Lord. In other words, under the authority of the Lord. It needs to be what he has authorized, what he has commanded. So the Lord does care how he's worshiped. And we might remember in the example of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 and verse 9, that it says, just so according to the pattern given you, so you shall make it. Well, it's no different in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul told Timothy, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me, and faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. In other words, there is a pattern in the words given by the Apostles. And that pattern is to establish whatever it is that we do or say, like Colossians 3.17 says. It needs to be done in the authority of the Lord. And so there's a pattern we've got to seek out. There's a pattern of worship, and we need to worship according to the pattern. In Matthew 15, and quoting from Isaiah, Jesus told the Pharisees, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That tells us plainly and simply that God does care how he's worshipped. Because if he's worshipped in a way that is according to the doctrines and commandments of men and not according to his pattern, then it is vain worship. In other words, it's empty worship. It won't be pleasing. It will do us no good. And it will not be pleasing to God. And so he certainly cares how he's worshipped. There's a second question I think we should ask before we get to the third question, what kind of worship is God seeking? And our second question is, will our type of worship affect our standing with God? And so does he even care how he's worshipped? Well, yes, I think we've established that. But will that way we worship affect our standing with him? So he cares, but will it affect our standing with him? And so someone might think, well, yeah, he cares or else he wouldn't have given us the scripture. But he's not going to make it a test of fellowship. He's not going to uh, make it a, a test of our our salvation. In other words, if if we don't do it the way that he wants, he's told us to do it, that he cares about us doing it, he's not going to send us to hell for doing it that way. Well, that's a question we need to address. Will it affect our standing with God the way we worship? Well, again, I think our text, John 4, 19 through 24, asserts that it certainly does affect our standing with God. And it shows it by implication. Notice the words there in verse 24. When Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Must is a word that we understand. We tell a child that you must clean your room before you go play with your friends. We didn't give that child an option. He must do it. And we understand what that means. Well, the Greek word is day, and Strong defines it as it is necessary. That is, as binding. And so must means absolutely you have to do it. Now, what does that have to do with our standing with God? Well, must also implies that there's a law. If God says we must do something, we must worship in spirit and in truth, then that establishes law concerning whatever it is that we must do. In 1 John 4 and verse 3, it says, or 1 John 3 and verse 4, rather, it says, whoever commits sin 
commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And so if we must do something, that implies law. But if we don't do what God says we must, then we are lawless. We've broken the law. And that is the exact same thing as what sin is. Sin is lawlessness. Isaiah 59 and verse 1 says this concerning sin. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, another word for sin, have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So this is simply what I'm saying. Jesus said you must worship God in spirit and in truth. Must means law. So if you don't worship God as he specified, then you've broken law or you've sinned. And sin is what severs our relationship with God. In other words, our type of worship will affect our sinning with God. Ironically, a person can come to God seeking to pay him homage, to do him reverence, to show him respect and glory and worship. And ironically, in seeking that, he can actually damage his relationship with God if he's worshiping God in a manner that is not according to his pattern. And so does our worship affect our standing with God? It absolutely does. And just like with our previous point, it's been established very firmly in the past. The type of worship men have offered God in the past, they, it's always affected their standing with God for good or for bad. We see that with the Israelites. After they had been freshly called out of Egypt to become God's people, we remember vividly the text of Exodus 32 when while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law that the people didn't know what had become of him. And so they asked Aaron to mold some gods for them that they should worship. Come make us gods that shall go down before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And Aaron surprisingly complied. Aaron knew better, but he told them to bring all of your jewelry, bring all the gold that you have, and and we're going to to make you a god. And from that gold, he fashioned an engraved with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. In Exodus thirty-two and verse four, they said, "This is your god, O Israel, that has brought you up out of the land of Egypt." And Aaron saw it, and he built an altar and he made a proclamation, saying, "Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord." So they offered burnt offerings the next day and peace offerings, and they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, they were worshiping Jehovah, or at least in their mind they were. They just made a physical image so that they could direct their worship to something, to someone. Because they didn't know what Moses was doing. They didn't know where he was. But they still said, this is Jehovah, your God. Aaron thought that he found a loophole. And so they were worshiping God, or so they thought, but they weren't doing it in the way that he had prescribed for them to. So the Lord said to Moses in verse 7, Go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Notice the word there, that my wrath may burn hot against them. The wrath of God comes upon people who practice unrighteousness. We see that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness and ungodliness, the wrath of God was being poured out upon them. 
with the Gentiles of Romans 1. The wrath of God means that we're at enmity with God. Now we remember the story how Moses interceded for the people and, and stayed God's hand and God didn't destroy them that early. But nevertheless, their relationship with him was extremely affected. There was a rift between the people and God because of their sin and worshiping God that was contrary to his pattern. We see it again in Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu. Remember, they offered fire which God had not commanded them. Did that affect their relationship with God? Well, Leviticus 10 and verse 2, it says, Fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. They did not glorify God. They did not regard him as holy, as someone special, as someone to be you know, revered before their eyes when they offered fire which God didn't command them. There was nothing wrong with the fire inherently. The problem with the fire is that God did not command it. He cared how he was worshipped, and he told them how he wanted them to worship him. And when they didn't worship him how he wanted them to worship him, it affected their relationship with God. God destroyed them for it. We see another example, a couple of examples with King Saul. In 1 Samuel 13, when the Philistines were bearing down on Saul and his army, he was told to wait seven days according to a set time by Samuel to offer sacrifice before battle. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal in 1 Samuel 13 and verse 8. And so Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as it happened, and as he sent the burnt offering, pre presented the burnt offering, that Samuel came. And this is what Samuel said. What have you done? In verse 11, Saul said, When I saw the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made the supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. In other words, he didn't wait for Samuel the priest to come and offer, him, offer it like he was told. Did that affect his relationship with God? Well, I want us to notice that his worship, contrary to the standard of God, did affect his relationship. Samuel said, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Verse 13. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue, because the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so, obviously, his relationship was affected. He didn't learn from this, for in chapter 15, after being given the command to completely destroy Amalek, he didn't completely destroy Amalek. He reserved Agag, the king, and he reserved some of the, the livestock in Amalek. And with that livestock that was unauthorized, offered a sacrifice to God. And Saul said to Samuel, in verse 20 of 1 Samuel 15, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek, I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Of course, he blames the people, but he was guilty of this. And so he takes the plunder which was not authorized and offers up worship to God with sacrificing these animals. Notice Samuel's response. Did this affect his relationship with God like the other thing did? Verse 22, Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. 
For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord he has also rejected you from being king. Notice that his unauthorized worship, didn't worship the way God wanted him to, was something which kept him from being the Lord's king. And I want us to notice the strong words Samuel said, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as is iniquity and idolatry. In other words, when you rebel against what God said he wanted in worship, then that's worship that's no better than idolatry. So people claim to be worshiping Jesus, but does Jesus really care that we do it exactly how he said? I don't think he does care. And so they do it differently. Well, that's simply another form of idolatry, of witchcraft. We need to understand that. He certainly cares how we worship him. And if we don't worship him how we, he wants us to worship him, then our relationship will be affected. This is true even today. God says that the way we worship him will affect our relationship with him. In Matthew 7 and verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so maybe it's worship that they're speaking of. Haven't we worshiped you in this way and glorified your name in this way? And if it's lawlessness, that is not according to the specified standard. Jesus will say, depart from me. They will be eternally separated because they worshiped wrong. You know, Paul called the Athenians in Acts 17 to repentance when he pointed out to them that this unknown God that they worshiped, they were doing it wrong. In Acts 17 and verse 29, he says, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by art and man's devising. But he didn't say it doesn't affect your relationship with him. He said, it does. He said, truly, these times of ignorance got overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, you'll be judged based on how you're worshiping now. And so you need to repent of that worship or you will be wrong in the sight of God. Jesus said in John twelve forty eight, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in that day. And his words that he has spoken includes what God wants in worship. And so does God care how he's worshiped? Yes. Well, will that worship then affect our standing with him? Absolutely. If we're not worshiping how God wants us to worship him, then we will lose our relationship with him and we will not make it to heaven. So here's our question of the hour. What kind of worship is God seeking? What does he want? If, if he cares and it's going to affect our relationship with him, then it is imperative that we come to understand what kind of worship God is seeking. Well, in John chapter 4 and verses 23 through 24, Jesus describes it in this way. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so he speaks of true worshipers, which implies a true worship. True worshipers are those who are involved in true worship before God. But true worship involves a false worship, which goes along with the points we've already established. 
God cares how we worship him. And if we don't worship him how he wants us to worship him, then we are false worshipers and not pleasing to God. But then Jesus defines what true worship is and therefore defines who true worshipers are. He says, it is those who worship in spirit and in truth. That's the kind of worship God is seeking. But what is that worship? Worship in spirit is something which is especially connected with the nature of God. Notice there in verse 24, it says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit. Spirit worship is that which involves our spirit or our inner man. Sometimes we describe it as worship that is sincere and heartfelt. And so it's not just that we're going through the motions, but our spirit is actually involved. It's not just empty bodily action. It's something that we're truly involved in in our inner man. Consider back again in Acts the 17th chapter what the Apostle Paul mentioned to the Athenians. In verse 24, he said, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. The point Paul is seeking to make with the Athenians is that God is not a physical being. And so he's He's not to be worshipped as if something is going to be beneficial to him or pleasing to him that is physical. God is spirit. And so our worship needs to be spiritual. There's an example of this in Psalm 50. One of the greatest problems in Israel regarding their worship was that they were worshipping God in the proper form many times, but they weren't worshipping in spirit. Their hearts weren't involved. And that's a problem addressed in Psalm 50. In verse 7, God says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. Pause there. So the rebuke is not that they're offering wrong worship to God outwardly. It's not that they were offering the wrong animals or that they were offering the animals in the wrong way in their sacrifices. He says, I'm not rebuking you for your sacrifices. But then he continues in verse 9. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. And so what was the problem? It wasn't the way they were worshiping. It wasn't their sacrifices. But what the psalmist goes on to show God pointing out is that they had a mindset that was closer to idolatry, I would suggest to you. You see, idol worshipers thought that they needed to offer these animal sacrifices up to the idols because the idols were sustained by them. If they stopped offering the sacrifices, the idols would die. They would cease to be. And so God points out, I don't need these offerings for food. Everything on the earth is mine. I don't need to ask you to give me something. It's all mine in the first place. And so their mindset wasn't right. They were doing the proper form, but their mind wasn't in it. What they should have been doing is to offering thanks to God out of their hearts, paying their vows to God. In other words, 
doing what they said they would do in service to him within the contract of, of the covenant they were under. Their hearts needed to be involved. They needed to be appealing to God in worship because they depended upon him, calling on him in the day of trouble. You see, their hearts were not involved as it should be. In verses 16 through 23, he describes the people who were worshiping God, but then they were going out and and consenting with thieves and partaking in adultery and giving their mouth to evil. And so they had their the word of God in their mouth and worship, but their lives were not reflecting that as well. And so that's not worship in spirit. Someone who is coming to worship and doing everything right, but is leading a double life is not worshiping in spirit. What does the Lord delight in? Well, in the 51st Psalm, we remember the Psalm that David offered to God as a Psalm of penitence when he had sinned with Bathsheba against Uriah the Hittite. And these are some points that David made about spirit worship, worship in spirit. He said in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the get on my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth praise, your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David is not contradicting the Old Testament because God did require sacrifices. What he is saying is that there's nothing inherent within those animal sacrifices, as we know good and well from the New Testament revelation, like Hebrews 10. There's nothing in those that satisfies God inherently. God requires them, but what God really wants is that is a broken and contrite spirit. I'm sorry for my sin. In other words, my worship is heartfelt. It's from the heart. That's worship in spirit. As Micah chapter 6 and verses 6 through 8 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, the calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of the body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? He just wants our inner man devoted to him. And it's the same in worship. And so we need to worship God in spirit. That's the kind of worship God is seeking. But you notice in John chapter 4, he doesn't just say in spirit. He says also in truth. So it's not just enough that our worship is heartfelt, that we're sincere in it. It's got to be according to the proper form. Again, like we used in our last sermon in Luke 6:46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? In Matthew's gospel, it's worded in a different way as we recently read, but I want us to notice the analogy Jesus gave in verse 24 beginning that we're very familiar with. He says, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I will be will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. And so the words of Jesus are the foundation ultimately on which we should build our entire lives. Everything we do should be based on the words of Jesus because if it's not based on the words of Jesus, our life will crumble. Our spiritual standing with God will crumble. 
But that's certainly true also in regards to the specific part of our life, which is worshiping God. And so plug that in. Whoever is offering worship to God that is not founded on the words of Christ, the rock, then that worship will utterly fail. It will not be pleasing to God. It will not be acceptable to Him. And so our worship doesn't just need to be heartfelt and sincere, but our worship needs to be the proper form according to the truth revealed by Jesus, the pattern of sound words. There's an example of this with Cain and Abel. In Genesis 4, 1 through 5, that's recorded. And we might remember that in the process of time, verse 3, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was angry and his countenance fell. Why did God expect or respect rather Abel and his offering, but God did not respect Cain and his offering? Well, consider what 1 John 3 and verse 11 says. When speaking of the need to love our brethren, it says, This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, and not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Now, it gives the reason. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. He's not talking about the murder of his brother being evil. That That's evil. He's saying what led to the evil act of murdering his brother was that his works were evil and his brother's righteous. And so in Genesis 4, God accepted and respected Abel's offering because it was right. It was righteous. And he rejected Cain's because it was evil. But why was Abel's righteous and Cain's evil? Hebrews 11 sheds some light on this. In verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. And so the reason God accepted Abel's offering was he did it by faith. Cain did not offer it by faith. And it's not that Cain didn't believe in God. It's not that Cain, his heart wasn't involved in it. There's nothing that would lead us to that conclusion. And In fact, in Genesis 4, it says he became angry and then he murdered his brother. So he's passionate about this. It's obvious that his heart was involved to one degree or another. What does it mean that Abel offered by faith? Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In other words, our worship needs to not only be in spirit, but according to truth, as John 4, 24 says. And it was same with Cain and Abel. Abel's worship was according to truth. Cain's wasn't. Abel's worship was by faith. Cain's wasn't. And Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. And so it was impossible that Cain's sacrifice that was not according to faith was pleasing to God because he was not doing it according to true or proper worship offered by faith. Our worship must be in truth. That is the proper form as revealed in Scripture. What is that worship? What kind of worship is God seeking? Well, if worship must be in truth, then it must be found according to God's revealed truth. We're worshiping God after all, and we can't know possibly what God wants in worship unless we let God tell him. God's not put us in a position to reason amongst ourselves and be the arbiters on what God wants. God has revealed what he wants. So what kind of worship is God seeking? Well, God needs to reveal that to us. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, it explains, What man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? 
Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Paul says, Now we have received as an apostle, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. In other words, God through His Spirit and the apostolic ministry, which is where we get the New Testament, has revealed, as the pattern of sound words indicate, 2 Timothy 1.13, exactly the kind of worship he is seeking. And we can establish that pattern. Very briefly, the pattern is seen in the New Testament that those who are the Lord's people, those who are members of the Church of Christ, those who are members of the Lord's Church, were involved in five acts of worship. They were involved in singing, Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19. And it doesn't say playing instruments. It says singing. And the melody they make, Ephesians 5.19, was with their heart, not a mechanical instrument. And so the worship God requires, the worship God is seeking, is for us to sing songs of praise to Him. They were also given to prayer. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, it says they continued steadfastly in prayer. And 1 Thessalonians 5.17, it tells us to pray without ceasing. God wants us to pray to Him. And in that prayer, give thanks and praise and devotion and request to him out of faith. But they were also given to the worship of remembering the Lord's death and the instituted Lord's Supper. In Acts 20 and verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week that was done, when the disciples came together to break bread, a reference to the Lord's Supper. And in that same verse, we see another act of worship that Paul spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. And so, they heard preaching when they worshiped God. Preaching, a proclamation of God's word, brings glory to him as his word is manifested among people who need it. And he is glorified by that. He is worshiped when we preach the word. And then fifthly and lastly, the worship we see that God is seeking according to the New Testament pattern is the free will offering of those things we have been prospered with. In 1 Corinthians 16, it speaks of a collection for the saints and the order that was given to the churches of Galatia, the Corinthians must also do, we must as well. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be, may be no collections when I come. Those are the five acts of worship that God is seeking. He doesn't want us to be involved in, in making plays, in, in playing rock songs, and worshiping him with instruments of music mechanically. Because that's not something he requested. That's not something he said he wanted. He doesn't want us to have fellowship meals where we're eating together and somehow in that worshiping God in that action. He's never required that. He's never requested that. What kind of worship does God want? Well, the New Testament involves singing, praying, taking the Lord's Supper, preaching God's word, and giving of our means. That's the worship which God wants. That's the worship which is pleasing to God. And that's the worship which is in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3 and verse 17. What we need to do is realize there is a specific worship that the Father is seeking. He does care how he's worshipped. It will affect our standing with him. And he has made very clear what that worship is that he is seeking. It will be impossible to please him with our worship if we're not worshiping him exactly the way he wants us to worship him. So let us offer acceptable worship to our God. I thank you for your kind attention. And again, I hope that this lesson was beneficial to you, that it was an encouragement, that it was edifying. 
And again, we're going to be getting with you again with information for Wednesday and next Sunday. Just keep an open ear and we'll make sure to get that information to you so we figure out where we are and, and what we're doing when the time comes. Have a good day and, and God bless you. And thank you again for your kind attention.